welcome to the Lebers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. As always, you're with Mike and Ian, and we are continuing to reread the Aubrey Matron canon of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, bring us up to date here. With pleasure. Mike, last time, both the vizier and the day uh, in the vicinity of Algiers there had denied that they were helping transport this gold that's going to help to suborn the allies maneuvering against Bonaparte. Stephen had saved the life of the day while they were out lion hunting. The group then had survived a sandstorm on their way back to the vizier's camp. The vizier's undersecretary, a canite, not a Sethian, but a canite, had given Jacob a letter rerouting the gold to a fast-sailing Zebek, captained by the top corsair in Arzila, to be taken to Durazzo. So it had appeared then, Mike, that all this intrigue might have been about to come unstuck for Stephen. So this time we have Stephen and Jacob returning to Algiers, hoping to find the Ringle and the surprise. Once again, it seems there's a new day in town. Stephen, meanwhile, gets some unexpected additions to his family. Jacob gathers some intelligence. Stephen begins to doubt his diagnostic ability and his judgment while seeking help from the wind and from a Corsair. Hmm. An enigmatic. Yeah. We, we packed a lot in last week, Mike, but it was mostly on shore. I have the feeling that the, the ocean might be calling us this week. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, Stephen and Jacob arrived back in Algiers, you know, having traveled through this thick sand, which left over as, as this storm abated but continuing. There's no sign of the Ringle or the surprise from the mountain road that they're traveling on as they look out on that calling ocean. And Stephen asks Jacob to please kind of take care of the Turkish guards, take them out, reward them, buy them dinner, while he goes directly to the consul. Stephen notices as he's then traveling through the city that there's this strange excitement, this town that it seemed kind of more scarcely populated than plague days, all of a sudden has many more people out on the streets talking loudly and making gestures. He arrives at the console. Lady Clifford tells Stephen that Sir Peter is doing much better and thanks him. And indeed, when Stephen goes into the council, the council springs up much faster than a man, as O'Brien writes, so recently crippled by what looked very much like an exacerbated sciatica. So Sir Hmm. Peter also thanks Stephen and Jacob for their excellent medical help. And he asks Stephen if the two of them had met three squadrons of horse on their way back into the city. Stephen says they hadn't, and the council thinks, well, perhaps they took the lower road. Right. So something's going on here. I'm remembering that back in the previous chapter, we noticed some comings and goings at the day's camp. Here, we've got the consul noticing comings and goings around the town of Algiers. The consul goes on to explain a little bit about what's happening here. Commodore Aubrey had called back the Ringle right at the very last stages of the frightful blow. So the Ringle was no longer standing off of Algiers. She was away out to sea to help the uh, the squadron. Some Corsairs had said that the surprise needed the Ringle to help out with another dismasted and badly damaged Royal Navy ship. And that seems to be the story that we're all going to accept. Uh, Stephen recounts then his mission. He describes to the consul how he had saved the day's life, how the day had ordered the vizier that no gold should pass through Algiers, which seemed like a victory. And then the letter from the vizier to the ruler proving that the gold was going to be loaded onto the day's fast as Zebek at Arzila and would then sail through the Strait of Gibraltar at night for Durazzo. Stephen needed to get this information about the, the back-channel letter to the Commodore before it's too late to intercept the Zebek. And I've got to say, Mike, I, I was really grateful for this little bit of exposition here because at the very end of the last chapter, my head was spinning a little bit, figuring out of who out of all these Ottoman officials was saying yay versus nay to which aspect of the plot. Anyhow, turns out that we need to get this message to Jack. There's not a moment to lose. The consul says he's sorry. There's no way to get this information to Jack Aubrey and tell Stephen that meanwhile, a new day is to be proclaimed that same evening or the following day. Omar Pasha, the present day, the one that Stephen had saved from the lion and who had promised support in Stephen's mission to 
keep um, Napoleon's forces from uh, from combining. That day is going to be strangled by the executioners riding out in the horse squadrons. So that's what we had seen in town. It turns out that he had impaled too many youths and is now overthrown. So much for Stephen having been a little bit casual in his little side jokes earlier on about uh, impaling. Stephen then asks, might the vizier have had a hand in this? The consul thinks he probably did. The two men despised each other. The vizier thought that the day was an illiterate brute, which was an easy impression to make, but we discovered something a bit deeper behind his character. The day, on the other hand, thought that the vizier was a court queen. Come back to that word in a second. The consul has learned that the vizier privately is an admirer of Bonaparte, stands to receive a huge commission on the Muslim gold. That's a tale as old as time. And uh, Stephen asks for the <laughs> asks for the consul's help in interpreting this word court queen. So the consul helps us out as well here, Mike. We've got the usage that the consul's grandfather had, and he said most of his neighbours were court queens particularly those that did not choose to hunt the fox or the hare, he meant that they were somewhat effeminate, given to embroidery and probably to sodomy, little better than wigs. Which is funny, not a very kind of considered or to date opinion, but it's funny the way he speaks it. What, what else can we find out about this word court queen, Mike? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty archaic. It's obsolete. And it was used, among other things, to mean a man who performs tasks traditionally belonging to a woman or an effeminate man. Also used to describe a female cuckold, Hmm. a woman whose husband had been unfaithful. So we've seen cuckolds throughout the canon. Here's the first possibility of a reverse, although this one being applied to the vizier sounds like it's that original meaning. And certainly that sounds like what the grandfather with his elaborations of politics and hunting and everything else has laid on the word here. Um, <laughs> certainly, we're glad to live in a time where politicians do not speak that way about each other anymore. Oh, no, far from. Heaven forbid. Well, a messenger comes in reporting that the ringle may be in sight. The consul invites Stephen up to his telescope on the roof. And Stephen is amazed at the way Sir Peter is moving. He's walking against the wind. He's climbing rapidly up the ladder. And O'Brien writes, Stephen swore to abide by no obvious diagnosis for the rest of his life. (laughs) They had a hard time seeing through the telescope, though. The wind is still blowing. There's still sand in the air. And this is a very high magnification, so it's not clear Stephen finally makes out that this ship, whatever it is, has a latine, so clearly not the wrinkle, and that it's losing ground on every tack. So it's out there, but it's not coming in. They go down and they meet Jacob, who's who's come finally come back to the console, I guess having dealt with the Turkish guard, and he reports that Ali Bay will be the new day. The consul says, oh, I was certain it would be Mustafa. And Jacob says, no, it's going to be the bowstring for Mustafa. So it sounds like maybe Uh Mustafa's getting strangled in addition to Omar Pasha. He says, Ali will be proclaimed immediately after the evening prayer. And the consul says, well, that's good news. Ali is the one most in favor of the Ali's and most opposed to Bonaparte. And the consul says he hopes the doctors will be the first to congratulate the new day on his behalf, since everybody there knows that his health keeps him indoors. And I think Jacob and Stephen are kind of exchanging covert glances like, wait, he's right. sending us? Yeah, you know, right. And he, the consul, invites them both to stay with him and Lady Clifford until the winds, which may last another six or seven days, die down enough for ships to come back in. Well, Thinking about the delayed arrivals with the winds, the consul changes his mind suddenly and says, you know, eh, you know, never mind. Maybe why don't you accompany me to congratulate the day? He says that that will be, in his words, a capital stroke. And Stephen and Jacob agree to go along, you know, now posing as his doctors. And Jacob appreciates the invitation to stay, but says, you know, I'm, I'm going to, with your permission, decline that. And I'm going to be staying further out of town in an obscure lodging house, the better to meet my sources who would be compromised if they're seen coming to the consulate. 
Indeed. It's interesting. Jacob is being quite cautious about maintaining his cover as a spy. We might talk a bit later on about Stephen and how far he's working at the minute to do that. Now, we're in a town where the new day is about to be proclaimed. The evening prayer ends and the proclamation comes out. All of the Algerine gun batteries salute and the text says, thousands upon thousands of janissaries and of all those citizens who valued their well-being bawled out the name of Ali, competing with countless harsh trumpets and with drums of every pitch. So this is a, a big celebration. Everybody's out, at least apparently, to shout their support for the new ruler. There's merriment across the city. very, As you said, Mike, very different from when they first arrived and it felt like the plague times. The consul and the doctors supporting him arrive to greet the new day by coach. They're the first foreign representatives of any kind of government to greet the day. And with Jacob's excellent translation helping them along, he's interspersed it with Persian verses and proverbs to make them look good. The new day thanks them. He's an excellent host. He calls down the blessings of heaven and peace on King George. Hooray. And he has the consul carried out on a cushion to his coach once their visit is complete. So this all seems to have gone spectacularly well. So far, we don't know where the surprise is. We don't know where the wrangle is, but it seems like this transition of power has brought the pendulum of fortune swinging back towards Stephen, at least, I don't know, for a few paragraphs. Yeah, this is more like what Stephen and Jacob expected when they first arrived. Oh, the consul right. is tight with the day. We'll be able to yeah. pull this off. Uh-oh, new day. Up. Oh, now we're back. Now a day right. that is more, yeah, more on our side. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So later on, Stephen tells Jacob that despite all the anxiety about the surprise and the wrinkle, and the overwhelming spectacle of color and light and noise and emotion on the streets, he hasn't actually lost his appetite. So Stephen's in the mood to get something to eat. Jacob says that even if he had, he has news that might return it. He's received trusted news that a flood delayed the Russian troops. It's going to be at least another week before Napoleon's mercenaries can strike. And Stephen, who had been worried about the passage of time, about the days slipping away, says he's going to eat like a lion tonight. He hopes for mutton. <laughs> Not sure about the yeah. lion <laughs> simile there. But right. interestingly, right. Mike, all, all the way through this, I've been following the fact that, you know, the, the, the days of the 100 days are ticking by and Napoleon's got to get to Waterloo and be defeated. And we've got to do all of our action before all of that happens. And meanwhile, these boats are zigzagging across the Mediterranean. I've been doubting all the way along that any of these strand of action can take place in strict real time. And I think O'Brien must have been starting to think the same thing too, which is why he suddenly dropped in this news that, oh, it turns out it's okay. The Russians and the Austrians or whoever it is are kind of stuck in a swamp somewhere. And so we have a little bit of extra time, which I'm, I'm kind of relieved about because like Stephen, I was aware of the ticking of the clock. Anyhow, Stephen's hoping for mutton, but what kind of a mutton is it going to be? Well, it's funny. They do get mutton, there at the consulate, but it's prepared in the English way that Ooh. evening. And O'Brien goes on to tell us, but Stephen much prefers the tender lamb grilled on skewers that he has another day at Jacob's quarters near the gates of woe. So this beautiful O'Brien transition between paragraphs here. And days go on. They spend their days watching the ocean, walking the city. And at one point, Jacob heads off when an acquaintance telling Stephen, you know, meet me back at the Blue Dome coffee house later. Stephen takes off going through the city. He starts walking through the slave market. And O'Brien writes that Stephen was wandering slowly through this ultimate unhappiness and desolation, rendered just tolerable from being so customary. A fact of every day. Just then, O'Brien writes, Stephen heard a voice lost in misery say, oh, for the love of God, in Irish, not at all loud, with no strong emphasis. And I'm, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of rolling back going, what? We're getting to Irish now? Well, Stephen turns and he sees two small children, dirty and thin, not in slave chains, but tied together with a piece of string. The merchant, seeing Stephen look, calls out, telling Stephen that he can have them for a trifle. 
Stephen talks with them and learns that their brother and sister from Bally Donegan, who drifted out to sea in a small boat unmoored in heavy winds and that they were captured by a raiding Moor corsair. A small man Stephen recognizes from the New Day's people they'd seen when they visited the day walks up and speaks quietly to the merchant who listens with obvious respect. The merchant offers the boy four four guineas and the girl free for the honor of Stephen's custom. So it sounds like Stephen does indeed have new friends in the day's office, but who also perhaps are kind of keeping an eye on him as well. I don't know. But this thing of the kids, that's just kind of amazing out of the blue here. This is Ian doing a spot of time traveling. Now, not long at all after we recorded the episode... Our listener, Gareth Higgins, got in touch via facebook.com forward slash lover's hole and told us this. The story in the chapter here tells about Kevin and Mona drifting away from Jersey Island in West Cork and encountering Barbary pirates. In the story, the place that had been raided by the pirates was Dungarvan, which is Gareth's hometown. And in the story, the pirates have been fought off by the local people losing many of their number. Now... Gareth points out to us this is a reference to the real-life sack of Baltimore in West Cork in 1631, where English settlers living in Baltimore were rounded up by Barbary pirates and sold in the slave markets of Algiers. The pirate captain was a Dutch renegade who went by the name of Murat Reis, and the original target was Dungarvan. However, the pirates picked up a Dungarvan fisherman, John Hackett, who guided them to the undefended village of Baltimore instead, and the raid ensued. Hackett was eventually hanged for his help given to the pirates, but he did save his hometown of Dungarvan. Thanks very much, Gareth. Great insight. Of course, it's taking us back to territory, emotional territory, that we all recognise. We're back to the Sweeting Girls. We're back to Dill. We're back to slavery in West Africa. And this is a real Stephen moment, I think, here. Stephen, of course, pays the four guineas and buys these two children. He cuts their string, which is a nice little metaphor for what he's done for them, takes them by the hand and walks them to the coffee shop. Jacob helps Stephen out because Stephen, even though he's now a parent, still doesn't have a clue when it comes to vittling children. Jacob tells Stephen what to order once he's figured out that they do actually have teeth, and asks Stephen in his own term, what language is it that they're speaking? And Stephen says, Irish. The language spoken by many, if not by most of the people in Ireland, (laughs) which is a nice little dig against uh, English hegemony in Ireland. Good job. Stephen learns that the children have got no English at all, except for Mona, who can say most of the Hail Mary in English. Well done. Uh, Neither she nor Kevin has ever worn shoes. And that's a really, really... You know, striking reminder of the poverty, the poverty of the world, and certainly the poverty of the kind of kids who would get lifted from the coast of Ireland and then taken away in a in a pirate ship. Stephen asks Jacob if the kind woman by the gate of woe could maybe wash them, clothe them, brush their hair, and find them some shoes like the soft ones, these kind of espadrilles that uh, they know that the sailors wear. Jacob says he's going to take care of it. And Having eaten again and been cared for by this lady, Fatima, the children we learned look almost unrecognizable, perfectly willing to be friendly. And it's nice that the children only speak Irish. It's nice that that means even after his initial generous impulse to free them, Stephen's really got to stick with them because he's the one who can interpret for them. He wants to take them to the consulate. He has to go with them. He notices that the wind has died down and asks Jacob if they can take a carriage to avoid the stairs. Oh, for, for the children or for Stephen? Maybe a bit of both. And in the carriage, two-thirds of the way up, they face the sea. Of course, they, like we, are hoping for a sign of the Ringle, maybe even a surprise. But they don't see either ship, at least not by the time they get to the consulate. And, Mike, I'm remembering from just the previous meeting that they are in good odour with Lady Clifford and the consul, and that's all great, and... Stephen's mind naturally turns to uh, who's the well-bred British woman nearby who can help me with this. He was in exactly the situation with the Sweeting Girls not many books ago. 
So he tells Lady Clifford about the children and says, can you take them in? They're, they are distressed British subjects, for they are indeed, because Ireland is still subject to the British crown at that time. And he says, well, why don't you take them in while I make arrangements to get them sent home? And he's shocked when she says, no, my husband, who's off at a meeting, she says, can't stand children. Like some people with cats, she, he just can't tolerate them anywhere in the house. And that sets Stephen back. I think it I think it sets all of us back a little bit. And since the kids are Roman Catholics by birth and upbringing, she suggests that Stephen go and talk with the Redemptorist fathers. <sighs> and uh, that's a bit of a setback, right? It, it is. It is. And, you know, and I think we'll come to that. I, I, you know, I was already wondering about it. But I think there are a couple clues here. They're Catholics. Hmm. Yeah. And by the way, go talk to the Redemptorist fathers who are kind of renowned for dealing with the poor. That's that's right, kind of right. their mission. Yeah. So they're not only Catholics, they're poor Catholics. And right. you get that mm, icky feeling here. And just the whole fact that, well, we'll come back to it, Ian. This is, this is just so good here. <laughs> Outside, Stephen walks out and he's glad Jacob has not let the coach go yet. And he says, and, and O'Brien writes, I came on a fool's errand. Lady Clifford does not choose to house the children. I was truly astonished at her frankness. Were you, though? asked Jacob, looking at him curiously. I think, you know, this feeling like Jacob's like, yeah, I didn't doubt that for one second. Jacob continues, nevertheless, we shall be perfectly happy at our lodging house, but I'm sorry for your disappointment. It was a disappointment, O'Brien writes. However, it shook his faith in his own judgment to a remarkable degree. So we've had Stephen yeah. now saying, I'm not going to believe any of my diagnoses from now on. Now he's not believing his own judgment of people here, having thought yeah. for sure, just like Diana would take care of Dill, just like I can turn to Mrs. Broad. What's going on here? So fascinating where Stephen is here. It is my absolutely a fascinating side story. Stephen's got the opportunity to return these two children home, th thinking perhaps about his own, own role as a father. He was hoping for help from a woman locally, and he was turned down by her because of her husband's aversion to them. And you think then about Diana's apparent aversion to Bridget when she was first born, Stephen's love for Bridget, even though he's gone most of the time, and his love for Diana, even if Diana is averse to the children. So I'm sure there's an echo back to Stephen's situation at home before Diana died. Maybe also an echo back to some parts of O'Brien's family situation, but I'm not going to get mm. that, that right here. It's also interesting that Jacob wasn't that surprised that Lady Clifford wasn't going to help. And he was kind of surprised that Stephen didn't anticipate this. Maybe uh, the, the Irishness of it all is, <laughs> is at play. I didn't think it was all that shocking or unreasonable when Lady Clifford said, no, thanks. It, it seemed to me pretty reasonable, but it's clearly elicited a much stronger reaction from Stephen. So Stephen sends a note to the consulate asking to be excused from dinner, and he spends the evening feeding the children. He calls them ingenuous little creatures. He's going to be there with Fatima. And Mike, it, ingenuous means innocent and unsuspecting, right? <laughs> Yeah, and this this I, I think this really struck me. Ian, we just walked out of that paragraph with Lady Clifford, and I think innocent and unsuspecting is what Stephen walked in as with Lady Clifford. He was not his usual worldly intelligence agent, all antenna <laughs> up. And I think that's why Jacob was so like, really, you know, kind of in his own head. That's what you were expecting here. And I think this is uh, this is Stephen. This is so Stephen in a way. You know, it, he's disappointed when a woman doesn't want to care for children. But to Stephen's credit, Stephen cares for children. We've seen this time and time again. And I don't think Stephen ever loved Diana any the less for being different for it. But here is this woman saying, "Oh, my husband has this aversion to children." We don't know what all that is. We're going to get into this even deeper as we go along. But all this, especially coming right after shooting the lioness and the lion cubs, it's like, ah, boy, there's a lot going on here. Thank you, Patrick. Oh, Brian. <laughs> so that night, Jacob returns from visiting one of his cousins to talk about a gemstone deal. And he tells Stephen that his cousin had learned that the gold caravan didn't turn around until yesterday. 
So another change to the breathless time schedule here. They're going to need 10 days to reach Asgard and then even more time to get to Arzila, where the Zebek is lying. They've got a fortnight or more before the Zebek leaves with the gold. So another reprieve here for Stephen on his mission to try and interfere somehow with this gold plot. The head of a different Corsair group, one that we hope is going to be our friend, Abdul Reis, has told Jacob that they could see some of his galleys in the inner harbor tomorrow early in the day if they wanted. They're going to need to come in early because he thinks the wind might change and he's going to want to leave for Sardinia before noon. So Jacob suspects that their good status with the day is helping them out here, that they're being invited to to take a look and to, to participate in the help. Stephen's not sure though, right? Yeah, Stephen asked Jacob, Amos, did you ever read an author who said, and he quotes, never underestimate a woman's capacity for jealousy, however illogical or inconsistent or indeed self-defeating? And Jacob replies, I don't think so. But the notion is fairly widespread among those who think of men and women as belonging to two different nations and who wish to be profound. I thought, hmm. whoa, go Jacob. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. Jacob has never heard of this quote. I couldn't find this quote or anything quite like it anywhere. So I'd love to know if listeners have this pegged, by all means, please do. And I can't help but feel, Ian, that we're, as I was going through here, the notes I was jotting myself were saying, there's something going on here with the Cliffords. I'm not sure what yep. to make of it. Right. There's this issue of this diagnosis with Sir Peter's illness that baffles Stephen. And then there is now this perhaps Irish prejudice or poverty prejudice or both unthinkable to Stephen, refusal to repatriate these children. And now Stephen's categorizing it as an illogical, inconsistent, or perhaps self-defeating jealousy. Ian, how about you? Any any luck on any quote, anything like this? Uh, I, I will say that one of the things I loved was Jacob's reply, regardless of the quote. <laughs> I'm with Jacob. I agree. Yeah, exactly. Wanting to be profound. Well, I found one, and I'm really not convinced by it. Uh, there was a 19th century writer and poet named Coventry Patmore, who wrote in rhyming couplets that are not terribly inspiring, a woman is a foreign land of which, though there he settle young, a man will ne'er quite understand the customs, politics, and tongue. So not a noble feminist, maybe the kind of person who's trying to be profound. Ah, I don't know. Was was Jacob calling him out? It, like I say, Mike, it doesn't seem a perfect fit. So if anybody else can shed light on these quotes about jealousy or about women, women and men being from different nations, um, let us know. You know what to do. Right, right. You know, we're not even getting to Venus and Mars yet, right? No, no. <laughs> oh, perhaps with that in mind, are men, you know, and women from Venus and Mars, or is there perhaps something else going on through all of this? Maybe a refreshing beverage, a few moments of thought, and we'll be back in a moment after this break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope you had productive researches into your sources during the break there. Let's see how Stephen is doing. Let's check in. He is awoken at dawn by the voice of a little girl asking if there are any cows to be milked. And it's a very cute and memorable little moment here in case amongst all of the other doubts about everybody's motivations and who's on whose side, if you were wondering if these are good kids, these are definitely good kids. They're there to milk the cows. Stephen says there are not any cows, but there was water to be drawn with Fatima's help. There are faces to be washed, prayers to be said, and a perfectly delightful breakfast to be eaten. Bananas and dates amazed the children in a little hidden court behind. Soft bread toasted on the brazier that at some distance kept the coffee warm, toasted and spread with honey. Oh, my, this sounds like a good breakfast. Toast, yogurt, dates, honey. I'm there. Yum. 
Yeah, indeed. Jacob, in his turn, wakes up and tells Stephen there's a parcel for him from the consulate last night after he'd gone to sleep. And inside, there are two things. There's a gorgeous robe with silk scarves. And the robe with the silk scarves itself is enclosing the rifle that Stephen had earlier received from the former day. The vizier enclosed a note of apology, mentioning a mix-up with the baggage handlers, saying that if Stephen had mentioned the loss to the new day, then he might also then kindly mention its return, and closed with a series of very eloquent blessings upon Stephen and all of his family and people. And after Jacob had finished translating the note, he concluded, My impression is that the vizier was so sure that his friend Mustafa would be elected that he could do whatever he chose to do with impunity, and that now he has offered himself to you, bound hand and foot. Huh. So maybe, maybe it's all going to work out. And as a little extra bonus, he's got the rifle and the robe, right? Right, right. And and now we you know we clearly are seeing who who was the deceptive person here. This was not yeah. the day. This was the yeah. seer here. Absolutely. Well, they head to the harbor to meet Abdul Reis. Reis, by the way, Arabic for captain. So this is Captain Abdul here. Yeah. Uh, when they arrive at the harbor, they see the Ringel just outside the northern limit, beating up for the shore. Now, the children are not looking at the Ringle. They're looking at the galleys, which is just like the one they were captured by. And they're tucking in tightly, holding Stephen's hands tightly. And Stephen asks Jacob to ask Captain Abdul if the Ringle will eventually reach port. And the captain says she may get in by moonrise or sometime in the night, the operative word being may. And Stephen says he believes the Ringle will be exactly in the galley's path if it's headed out for Sardinia. And he tells Jacob he'll give the captain any sum Jacob thinks proper to carry them out to the Ringle. And yeah. Stephen's so confident in this, he says, look, I'm going to hurry back, settle up with Fatima, and I'm going to bring our belongings. So it's like, look, get us on that galley. I'm going to go get our stuff. Very good. Huh. And it's a nice moment. It's almost sort of understated. We hardly notice that they're revisiting their roots in the Royal Navy here. They hear the sounds that sound like a Royal Navy ship getting underway, but with an additional Moorish howl. So they're already thinking about association. Um, the children here aboard the pirate galley are even more scared by the habitual brutish ferocity of the crew members' expressions, along with the knives and the pistols that they're all armed with. And as they sail along, the captain says that as long as Stephen guarantees that the Ringle won't fire on them, he'll put them directly aboard, so no fooling around in boats. Stephen bows repeatedly to the captain and looks for a place in the top, in the rigging on this galley, to signal to the Ringle. Unlike the surprise, this ship doesn't have a place that Stephen can comfortably reach. No lubber's hole, in other words. And he goes onto the barrels with the children to watch pocket glass and thinks that he's going to make antic gestures when the Ringle is close. So Stephen and the children wedge themselves in along something a bit like the forward rail on this galley. They can see William Reed, and in the telescope they can see his gleaming steel hook. He waves his handkerchief. A master's mate behind Reed with his own powerful glass tells Reed what's happening, and Reed waves back. And so Stephen tells the children to stand up so that Reed can see them. I mean, <laughs> who who thinks that? Reed is instantly going to see two kids and go, oh yeah, I see what's going on here. <laughs> anyway, he's pretty sure that just the pointing to these two kids here is going to explain the whole complexity of the situation to William Reed. In the process, almost losing them over the side when the galley lurches, but fortunately, he grabs them by the shirts. The shirts hold fast when he grabs them, and we're all great. He goes aft, he unties his parcel, takes off the fine robe, wraps the gun in his shirts, and woolen drawers, raising the question in my mind, Mike, what's going on with the robe? Why does he not want that wrapping up the gun? And then while the ships are made fast to each other, he gives the robe to Abdul, to the captain, with his heartfelt thanks, translated by Jacob then as he goes across the brow, like a crab sideways with the children with him. Other people have been generous in response to a, you know, a, a kindness and... Stephen, I think, feels moved to do the same by Captain Abdul here, which is a really nice moment. Nice, nice. 
Well, Reed greets Stephen as he comes aboard. Why, sir? And here you are. And uh, I can't help it. They, that's exactly the way Jack always greets Stephen in that kind of way here. And yeah. Reed, you know, helps heave him inboard as he's saying this. And he says, the Commodore, who's eating his heart out in Mahan, will be so happy to see him too. Stephen tells Reed all about the children, has them make their bob and their leg. We've, you know, we've certainly seen this before. And says he hopes to put them on the next vessel of a friend bound for the Cove of Cork. He'll have Paul look after them on the surprise. They call for a hand who speaks some Arabic, who was a slave in Morocco, and who also has children of his own to look after the kids and get them fed. So once again, let's see, who knows anything about what kids eat? Let's, let's, let's take care of them here. <laughs> yeah, no, no Jimmy Ducks this time, but fortunately, as you say, it's somebody who speaks the language. Right. Well, down below over coffee, hooray, um, Reed tells Stephen and Jacob about the Commodore helping this ship called the Lion. But I'm surely not a coincidence that HMS Lion is the name chosen for the ship that's going to be part of this little mini adventure here, given what we had in the previous chapter. The Lion had been dismasted and was calling out to the Ringle for help. By the time they'd reached them, they couldn't see 50 yards ahead of them in the flying sand and had to follow the minute guns. Surprise had a tow line to the Lion by the time the Ringle got there and had brought her head round. And that was all looking okay until disaster struck. A heavy Dutchman from a scattered convoy came hurtling down out of the storm, severed the tow and, according to the text, struck the surprise just abaft the starboard cathead, carrying away her bowsprit, her heads, her forefoot, much of her gripe and starting God knows how many buttons. And my, I'm going to set to one side for a minute my skepticism that any Dutch ship can both part the tow and wipe away the bows of a frigate. Never mind. Like like the magic bullet in the assassination of Kennedy. Reed says then that it's difficult to believe they describe the next few days. There was foul, luckily not cold weather. All the surprises beds were used up to stuff the started butts, these planks that had been sprung, where the sea was pouring in despite all the fothering in the world. All the pumping he's talking about there. Reed says he's never seen so much grog drunk with so little effect. Wow. Wow. And again, we've got, we've got a little bit of, you know, this is a place that we all can remember. We can remember Fothering aboard the Leopard. We can remember the Worcester in the Ionia mission taking a bit of a pounding. We can remember the Surprise taking a pounding in action as well. We can all remember what kind of a nightmare scenario it must have been and what heroics Jack must have called on for the crew. But we're not there first person. This is just reported to us in a couple of paragraphs. And uh, we just have to take it as read. I'm also noticing that he says never he's seen so much grog drunk with so little effect, which is an opposite to what happened aboard the Leopard back in what, Desolation Island. So everyone had behaved well. The Lion had eventually managed to get a jury rig shipped, enough for her to make five knots. The wind and the leaks were a little bit less wicked sooner, and they limped into Mahon. The Ringle had been pronounced fit. She'd taken on some stores and was sent back, to Algiers to fetch the doctors. And meanwhile, all of the shipwrights from the Lion had worked on the surprise around the clock to get her back to shipshape again. The wind had shifted back into the south. They thought they'd never, ever see Africa again. So they'd been blessing this southerly gale because now that Stephen has hitched a ride on the galley and got out there into the Straits of Gibraltar, this southerly gale is all that they could possibly wish for. So Mike, this has been a novel of you know, rapid passages and handbrake turns screeching around the Mediterranean, and here comes another one. Right, right. And, and sure enough, to your point, Ian, the next morning they reach Mahan. The lion is still under heavy repair, but the surprise is in the fairway, looking as trim and neat as ever. Jack was on a boat with his joiner, you know, looking around, looks like they're really fancying up the surprise. He sends the joiner back up and Jack pulls himself rapidly across the harbor to join them. He's so glad to see them, amazed they're back so soon with the full gale so steady in the south. And Reed tells him that they would not have seen them for days if the doctors had not come out on a Corsair galley. Jack invites them back to the ship. He says they've been preparing her to welcome the Admiral for dinner. Stephen introduces the children and asks if he can take them to Paul. Jack says, of course. 
and he asks William to put the Ringle alongside rather than to have everyone go in and out of boats. I think he he realizes, yeah, <laughs> yeah let's let's not let's not tempt fate here, right? And Stephen thinks this feels just like a homecoming. Here he is back aboard. The ship is spotless. It's shining. The surprise. He does note, however, that Jack looks 20 years older and quite thin and that everyone's smiling face has traces of hard labor and fatigue. So that even though everybody's all doing their best, looking their best, it's clearly taking a toll on them. Killick comes up and takes off his hat and Stephen doesn't recognize him until Killick starts to speak, welcoming Stephen back and saying that he's laid out the doctor's best clothes on his bed. Stephen asks if he has to change, and Killick says, well, he doesn't want to bring any shame on the barky with the Admiral dining aboard. So it sounds like even though things look different, they sound a lot alike, <laughs> a lot the same here. <laughs> it's great. Again, like it, it's a happy signifier, right? We're contended, even though we don't know quite how it's all going to turn out. We're happy for Stephen and his, uh, and his friends that they're back aboard the surprise here. We're also comfortably back in the company of everybody's favorite misery guts, preserved Killick. Stephen asks Killick to take the children to pole skipping to have them cleaned up and fed. And he says, above all, be very kind and gentle with them. Killick says, kind and gentle, sir. He sniffed and added, well, I shall give the message. (laughs) Why would anybody want to be kind and gentle to two kids Least of all, two Irish slave orphan kids. Ugh, anyway, gotta love Killick. Stephen adds that these kids don't speak any English, and we get another little echo back to something that, that has an emotional association for us. He says, they don't speak any English, but Gagan can interpret, which is the name for clearly an Irish seaman reminding us of the young midshipman Gagan the oval player who died on HMS Bellona back in the Yellow Admiral. <sighs> so we've gone through all of this ritual of the coming aboard and the getting settled and the straightening out the situation with the children. Finally, Stephen has the chance to ask for a private word with Jack. And this must have been burning in his head, even though he's had some good news about the, the timing and the delays elsewhere. He must still have been thinking there's not a moment to be lost. And so he's super happy, I think, to get the chance to talk to Jack. He reminds Jack, you remember, it was really important that we prevent the gold from reaching the Adriatic Muslims. Well, he says, the day had agreed to not let it pass through Algiers, but he had been murdered. So the gold is or soon will be on a rapid vessel in the port of Azila. It's going to pass straight by at night with a favorable wind. And he says, don't you think then, Jack, that we should leave immediately? So how is this going to sit with Jack, I wonder? Well, Jack thankfully reminds Stephen that the same winds that delayed Stephen's return to the surprise have kept the other vessels stranded as well. And he tells him that none, none of things like this Zebek would attempt the strait and its wicked lee shore, that this galley or Zebek would not have ventured out into the storm seas here. So they, he says, have plenty of time for dinner with the Admiral and Mr. Wright, who's asked after Stephen. And Stephen says Jack has relieved his mind, but he looks so pale. And, you know, this is Jack thinking, what's what's with Stephen looking so pale? And I think this is Stephen so anxious about everything in the timetable and everything. And Jack says, look, I'm going to make you a gin and put some lemon and I want you to drink it slowly here and drink it down, drink it every bit down. So here's here's Jack prescribing for Stephen. You know, we had Jack showing Stephen birds. Now Jack's prescribing for Stephen. And while Stephen is sipping that gin down, Simpson, the barber, arrives with hot water saying that Killick thought the doctor might like a shave. (laughs) Very diplomatic. So they receive... Admiral Fanshawe and his secretary and his political advisor, just as the clocks are ready to strike the hour. Sometime after, an aged shabby gentleman in what is described as clothes of another age comes in with two porters carrying a copper tube towards the accommodation ladder. It's Mr. Wright, the engineer. He apologises for being late and Lieutenant Hewell shows him the way to the cabin. His porters, though, are not going to give up the package until they've managed to lay it on the dining table 
in front of the company and demand to be paid. And Harding takes care of them. He pays them off, gets them off the ship, and Killick and his mate rearrange the glasses and the silver. It's, it's very significant that it's Killick who is in company in the room there because he gets to be, at least indirectly, a witness to what we're about to see. Because Mr. Wright takes one end of the tube, gives the other to the Commodore, opens it, and pulls out the narwhal tusk. The narwhal horn, as they call it, perfect in its curves and spirals without a hint of repair. I cannot detect the slightest join, cried Stephen. It is a masterpiece. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Now, almost everybody is happy with this except for the cook. The cook has to say that the dinner has been delayed, but everyone gets seated and the dinner begins. Now, Mike, it's it's a nice bit of planting and paying off here. We had the narwhal horn slash tusk planted with us right at the beginning of the book. We met Mr. Wright, and he's been away from our our view. And here we have the narwhal horn return. Interestingly, this is also one of the things about which we've got some audio of Patrick O'Brien speaking. Um, In a TV documentary, one of the things that he does is he takes out and talks about his own narwhal horns. Let's take a listen now to Patrick O'Brien himself in 1998 or thereabouts, talking about his narwhal horn. Well, this is a narwhal tusk, the narwhal being a northern, smallish northern whale, of which the male has uh, just two canine teeth, only one of which develops, and it goes on and on and on developing in this extraordinary shape spirals with, with tori. And I've been to ask rather eminent uh, physiologists whether the spirals and those waves add to the strength. It doesn't appear to pierce ice at any time. It doesn't seem to fight other novels with it. And the Eskimos who hunt it, uh, they've never complained of its harshness to them. It seems perfectly mild and harmless. But there it is. It, it's a very, very curious object. And I find it in itself, it has a, a surreal beauty. I mean to polish it a good deal more. So there we have rare footage of Patrick O'Brien talking to anybody in the media. Interestingly, footage of him talking about the narwhal horn. A big thank you then to our listener, Philip Moorhouse, for sending us the link to the video. Thanks very much, Philip. Really appreciate your support. Hope you're still enjoying your time as a Lover's Hole supporter. Now, interestingly, Mike, O'Brien in the video there was speculating about whether the curves and the spirals have a functional role to play. And all the guests at the dinner and Mr. Wright were speculating about the curves and the spirals. Ten years before O'Brien spoke in that video, the answer was out there. In 1988, in the journal Arctic... Two Canadian scientists, Michael Kinsey and Malcolm Ramsey, wrote to suggest that actually the twist in the tusk is what helps novels swim straight. Not because of the hydrodynamics of the shape of the spiral, but just because the thing needs to be a spiral in order to stay straight. Like all teeth, a narwhal tusk grows from new material that's deposited at its root. And like all teeth, the growth of new material is not symmetrical, which is why tusks on other animals and why fingernails and teeth will grow with a curl in them. A tusk unevenly grown like that could never be curved. It would always kink one way or another. And that's what happens with other tusk-bearing mammals, like I say, like walruses and elephants. Since it's so likely, since it's so guaranteed almost, that one section of a root of a tooth is going to grow faster than another, a long curved tusk would be impossible to swim with But if the tusk twists as it goes so that the asymmetrical growth becomes part of the picture of the spiral going along the axis, each point on it passes over and over regions of faster and slower growth. Any imbalance in the rate of growth evens out and the result is a slightly twisted tusk with a straight axis. So a spiral mode of growth helps it stay overall straight even though the tusk itself at its root is growing irregularly. Thank you. Michael Kingsley and Malcolm Ramsey and bad luck to Patrick O'Brien, whose deep research 10 years after the publication of the article wasn't quite helping him as he thought it would. I think 
we, we may have reached the time when O'Brien was saying, you know, I did so much research in the beginning. I don't have to do it quite as much at the yeah, end here. Exactly. <laughs> so the surprises are not worried at all about not knowing exactly what the function is. Because back in the captain's table, in the captain's cabin of the surprise in 1850, we read, the news of the horn's perfect restoration, of it being in an even finer state of beauty than before, Mr. Wright, with his delicate burrs and buffs having given it the gleam of fine old ivory, that news spread rapidly through the frigate. The ship's luck was aboard again. Killick's unattractive, shrewish face beamed once more. His messmates, he had been very nearly expelled from their society, smiled, winked, and nodded at him in the cabin and slapped him on the back as he traveled to and from the galley. Ah, yes, 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 yes. The dinner goes very well. The good mood of the guests matches that of the ship. O'Brien writes, good humor is a charmingly infectious state anywhere, particularly aboard a ship that has recently had a very tough time of it and that is now in port, moored, fore and aft. Huh. <laughs> so after they drink to the king, Jacob tells the politico that he believes his colleague, that is to say Stephen, is anxious to have a word with him. And the Politico says he wants to have a word with him. They've had no news since the sea went mad. And the text says, in a reasonably subtle manner, which other people, the neighbours and the servants standing behind their chairs, would not understand, they arranged for a private meeting somewhere later in the day. But their professional cunning was cast away entirely when the party came to an end. And the Admiral quite openly asked Stephen to come with him and speak about his experiences on the Barbary Coast and the present state of affairs in Algiers itself. So all, all the best laid plans there, Mike, for cunningly avoiding being outed as intelligence agents has more or less been undone. So Stephen finishes briefing the company, bringing them up to speed on the change in the situation with the new day and the old day. I'm noticing as well that I think Stephen is getting a bit less careful about revealing his character as an intelligence agent. We've been told very clearly that Jacob is still quite cautious but Stephen's being a bit less careful. Maybe that's because he knows that this is sort of the final struggle against Napoleon and soon it won't matter anymore. Maybe he's just getting old. Or maybe might he cares a bit less about his security since he lost Diana. Maybe it's a combination of yeah. all those things. Yeah, good point. Well, the Admiral thinks Ali is going to be a change for the good this new day. Stephen shares his pleasure that Commodore Aubrey said that the Corsair ship has probably also been stopped by the storm. The Admiral says, and, and O'Brien writes, it was a shocking blast indeed. All the East India and Turkey ships were blocked in Lisbon, and Lord Barmouth only just managed to get into Gibraltar. Stephen says, Lord Barmouth, sir? Why, yes, he has superseded Lord Keith, and it is to him you will have to address your report. Lord Barmouth cried Stephen, startled out of his usual equanimity. Boy, and I'm, boy, and I'm, I'm, I remember I just paused on Barmouth. Do we know this guy? What yeah, boy, this is search. really shot, Stephen. What is going on here? Huh. And I'm going, is that, hang on a second. That's not the same as Pellew. Pellew is Exmouth, googling names of admirals. No, no, not. This is, this is entirely a new one. We are as blindsided as Stephen was. Stephen tries to explain his lack of composure here. He explains that he remembers Lady Keith saying that they weren't going to be staying long uh, and that the Keiths intended to retire to a house near the governor's cottage until the weather in England was more tolerable. So he had not expected this retirement of the Keiths to be so soon and he had not expected this Admiral Lord Barmouth. You are displeased, Dr. Maturin, asked the Admiral, smiling. I beg pardon, sir, said Stephen. I have not the slightest right to an opinion on the matter, but I did know that Lord and Lady Keith had a long-standing friendship for Captain Aubrey, and I had hoped that the Admiral would do everything possible and impossible to reinforce his scattered squadron to make the capture of the Arzila Gallery more probable. Oh, I'm sure that Lord Barmouth will do his utmost, said Admiral Fanshawe, but as you know, the forces at his disposal are precious thin on the ground. Still, he said, rising after a pause, I do wish you the best of success. And at least 
you have a fair wind for your voyage. Mm. End of chapter eight. Wow. And Mike, wow. any other writer, you'd say, you have a fair wind for your voyage. This sounds like end of chapter one. <laughs> but no, it's Patrick O'Brien. This is end of chapter eight. Too true. I mean, I can't, I, I, I pause it and be like, wait, what? So we have everything lined up back for success. The hand of glory is in place. The horn's been returned. Killick's been redeemed. Stephen got his rifle back. All the timelines and the extra time are lined up. And now there's this potential spanner in the works, this Lord Barmouth we've never heard about. But we're seeing Stephen react so extremely in front of the Admiral. I'm thinking, oh, no, this can't be good. Right. I, we wonder about Barmouth. Like, is is this another admiral with a grievance? Hopefully not Admiral Hart's grievance coming back from his youth to haunt him. It's been a really, really interesting chapter. There's a big theme, I think, here about loss, of course, and loss of certainty. Like, there's it's all, it's all about doubt and skepticism and lack, lack of confidence. He's at a loss about the consul and his wife, about his diagnosis, about the consul's wife, her response to the children, the children themselves, jealousy, that slightly odd comment about jealousy, all of this story about the death of the lions and the cubs and the the death of the day uh, in conjunction with the death of Diana, the connection between Kevin and Mona and her relationship to Bridget. There's a lot going on here. I, I think this is not just about loss. I think it's also about doubting your judgment. Stevens can't trust his diagnostic skills. He can't trust people to behave the way that he expects. The people who are around you might be good and they might help you out and look after the kids that you've just found. Or they might be the kind who kill their allies and trade slaves. The nice, gently bred Englishwoman, you can't count on her. He's really, really good, isn't he, at overturning our tendency to see things as black and white. You know, all, all of the people, yeah. including Stephen, are in, are in in a world of shades of grey, and uh, it's really, really great that he keeps reminding us about this. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. It's just fascinating. Here's this fascinating set of events, this entire world, uh, this entire story with Stephen and Jacob and the vizier and the day, which plays out across this chapter. And without any spoilers, I, I actually don't think we hear of the vizier or the day and all that no. interaction coming back again. The rest of the book, you know, the rest of the canon for that matter here. So there's there's this fascinating story arc of fascinating characters. As you, as you said, Ian, deception, intrigue, the appearance that Stephen's completely lost out in this exchange. Then... You know, in the midst of all this gray, not black and white characters, the return of Stephen's rifle, making me think that even even though the day has been killed, uh, Stephen's kind of being saved here, that the vizier is alive, but he's returned the rifle here. The gold hasn't stopped. At the same time that Stephen's having a lot of these emotions, things seem to be playing out well for him like it could go well here yeah it could and and then there's the story at sea which we had really only in passing but it's been a a sea story once again this chapter we've got the surprise and the lion and the dutch merchantman we've got their perilous journey back to mahon told only really in passing could have had its own chapter but we didn't get that it's as if He's got like lots of sketches, lots of paintings, lots of images that he wants to present to us. He's not doing detail. He's not filling in all the sketches, but this is kind of making one big canvas of the 100 days. And Mike, it's probably fair to say that given the personal circumstances for O'Brien at this time in his life, we're amazed that he's he's writing at all, never mind that he's writing with this kind of insight and quality. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree with you more, Ian. So it leaves us, like at the end of the last chapter, wondering what happened next. Are all the assumptions about the gold ship and its timing true? Are they going to have the time and resources to capture it? You know, we had that doubt at the end. Who is this Lord Barmouth? What impact might he have on Jack and Stephen's mission? I don't know. Well, Mike, it seems like there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week to just a little bit more? Patrick O'Brien. 
I should like that of all things. The lion had been dismastered and was calling out to the Ringle for help.